Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live, on tape, from the lucky 13th floor of a commercial high-rise in beautiful Beverly Hills, adjacent California. From the studios of Sirius XM West, boasting an obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, the owner of one of the most identifiable voices in American culture. You have heard her every Sunday in The Simpsons, which recently entered a record-breaking 30th season, and you can hear her in an altogether different context in the true crime podcast, Small Town Dicks. Hello and welcome, Yardley Smith. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for coming by. I, in this tiny room. It's really cozy ah, in here. Ah. And I was just very loud. I know. I'm making both of us uncomfortable. <laughs> I barely know where to begin. And I actually, I never do this. I asked friends. I was like, I'm going to talk to Yardley Smith. What do I ask her? And do you know what? Everybody said the same thing that was honestly what I wanted to lead with. And it surprised me, which was, I loved her in Herman's head. Oh, yeah. Great. Uh, do you still get recognized? I do. Do you? Yeah. Uh, I get recognized. Almost every day, actually. And um, the top three things are The Legend of Billie Jean. Right. Uh, with Helen Slater and Christian Slater, though they are not related. They had they play brother and sister. Um, Maximum Overdrive, the Stephen King movie I did, which is terrible. And the only movie he ever directed. So it wasn't any better when he actually had creative control over no. his movies? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, poor sweet thing. He was uh, enormously out of his depth, which he admits. He wasn't still drinking um, then, was he? Oh, yeah. That was at the height. That was actually in his memoir. Um, and I didn't know this, of course, at the time. But he says that was really uh, where he went, oh, shit, something, I, okay, something's got to give. Yeah, I heard he was a mouthwash guy. <laughs> I think about that like almost every time I drink mouthwash, I'm like, Wow. Sometimes I think I'm a little out of control. I'm, there, I've never been mouthwash bad. Yeah, no, indeed. But every day on the set at five o'clock, the cases of beer would come out, and it didn't matter if it was a day shoot or a night shoot. And then it was then it was on, and we did a lot of night shoots. You were drinking as well. Yes, of course. Crawling through muddy tunnels in South Carolina. This was a different. <laughs> this was a different time. You hear these stories about John Wayne just like drinking until dawn, and then just going, "Oh, time to go back to set." I know. How did, how did they do it? I don't know because you know I, I can I'm part Irish and I can put it away, but oh god, yeah, I'm ju- mean, I'm juicing and I'm barely holding on so- by a thread. <laughs> 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 yeah, Herman's head was a really big deal to me. Fox was a big deal to me because uh, my parents took away cable for me and my sister. They caught us watching Porky's when we were like eight years old. So I so the end. You know, I tried out for one of the Porky's. You probably wouldn't know that, but I did. I haven't seen it. that movie since I was five. Yeah, well, I didn't get it. Uh-huh. So that's what, what, good. what were the porkies? Uh, didn't they? They had. There were multiple porkies. <laughs> what is a porky? You know, I I, I don't know. Actually, yeah. that's such a good question. <laughs> what is a porky? I I just you know just you just go with it when you're five and you have cable. That's <laughs> <laughs> that's Fair all we enough. knew. I think that's pretty much how. You me probably and... thought it was like Porky Pig. Maybe, and then we... it turned out not to be that. It was a lot of boobs. Yeah, this yeah. is this is we're a long way from Mel Blanc here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, one thing that I read, correct me if I'm wrong, doing a little homework that I'd never known. When you record The Simpsons, you have you are and always have been 
in the same room? Yes, we do it all together like an old radio play. That's so great. It is great. And and Jim Brooks, James L. Brooks, our executive producer, decided uh, right out of the gate that I, I think maybe because his background was sitcoms and then, of course, films and stuff, like, why is this ever, any different just because people don't see your faces? You're still having a conversation. Of course, you'll all be in the same room. If I... Well, first of all, has that evolved at all over the years? I mean, honestly, you get to a point where you're sort of like, oh, it's time to bang this thing out? No. No. We... St- uh, no. Michael. <laughs> <laughs> I know you wouldn't admit to it, but I had to try um, well, Hank Azaria moved to New York because uh-huh. he has a, a son now. And um, sorry, clunk, that's just me. I'm just this is my first time. People explore the space. Make um, yourself at home. <laughs> he so he lives in New York, so he does it remotely. Um, and Harry travels a lot. But those of us who are in town, me, me Nancy, Dan, Julie, Tress McDeal, who does uh, Mrs. Skinner, uh, the Crazy Cat Lady. Um, any and all, like so many voices, and she's a voiceover maven. She has, she was on Futurama. She's now on Disenchanted. She was on uh, Animaniacs. Anyway, her resume is a mile long. Um, anywho, we're all together in the same room, like an old radio play, and we do each scene four times. And then, if it's still not right, we do pickups. And then, as it takes eight months to animate one episode, which is forever. And over the course of that process, there I think there are about three major, three times you can make major changes, and it's not prohibitively expensive. So I do a lot of ADR as well, which is replacement dialogue for the people who don't know. Thank you, because I was one of those people until a second ago. You know ago. what? I actually still don't really know what ADR actually stands for, and ADR is different from pickups. I'm, so there. I'm willing to bet the A is audio. It's audio. Is it audio dialogue replacement? Or is no, it's not audio. I think it's additional dialogue replacement. Or recording. Or recording. See? Equally See? valid. Oi. <laughs> so if I were a fly on the wall in these sessions of the group recording, would anything surprise me about what's going on in there? I think you, I, I stand between Nancy, who does Bart, and Dan, who does Homer, and a million other things. Um, and to see Dan, in particular, because he does so many characters, go from character to character, voice to voice to voice. He had an entire three pages of dialogue just between characters that he voices, do them all himself without stopping, never gets old. I think you, even you, Michael, would be enchanted by that. What makes you think I'm so uh, incapable of enchantment? I don't know. <laughs> I would, I would, I hope you filmed these occasionally, just for posterity's uh, sake. Not real. Well, there might be some old film. They're sort of shy. They're a little bit like nocturnal animals. Me, I'm just always out, out and about. You seem friendly. I'm I'm fairly friendly. You seem approachable. Yeah, although I think there was actually something on a Wikipedia page at one point that said Yardley Smith seems really sweet, but she'll she could turn on you on a dime. I'm like, who the f- can I swear on this show? Yeah, please. Who the fuck wrote that? And you know you can't edit your own Wikipedia page. Well, that's why you make different accounts and you go in and oh, see, I didn't know that. Here I am just, you know, yeah. stressing out over things people say about me that they who I've never met. It turns out there's some downsides to uh, crowdsourcing information on the internet. Ah, <laughs> uh, so true. <laughs> Which is probably why my social media accounts are so anemic, because really... I'm getting there. First of all, I'm not that interesting, and second of all, I just don't have the tough skin to, to weather the trolls. 
Well, you gotta. It's like a cost benefit kind of thing, and at a certain point, what are we actually getting out of it? So, right. What do we want? That seems technical. Cost benefit. What do we want to put into it? You Is know? that like ROI, return on investment? Oh, if you're talking money, you're really going to lose me. <laughs> That's what cost benefit be, sounded in, like. I wouldn't be in radio if I understood how money worked. <laughs> so. I am not one of those people who thinks, oh, they should have stopped The Simpsons years and years ago. But I was. <laughs> but I. But you know, those people are out there. Oh yes. And I was one of those people because I was in the perfect age to. I was a kid who had a "Don't Have a Cow" T-shirt, and then I became, you know, a little bit more cerebral and started smoking pot during mm-hmm. those, you know, sure. four, five, six, seven, you know, and then. I think that there there were some seasons that seemed a little relatively creatively fallow. Now I have a six-year-old son. We watch it as a family, and I don't really distinguish between the classic episodes. And frankly, I like that because the show is still around, now Homer has a phone. Yeah, yeah. Which right. which wasn't possible. Yes. But was there... It is unusual. Obviously, it's unprecedented for a show to go for 30 years. Was there ever a point in time where you said, we probably have about run our course now? Um, I think... That's a good question. And because they're actually, everybody on the show sort of stays in their lane, you know, I I don't go to the writer's room and pitch ideas and sit around with them. And not, I mean, I would be welcome if I went to visit, but their process is really their own. Yeah. Um, And it would actually, I feel like that would, that question would be more truthfully answered by one of them. Uh, I, for myself, of course, there have been, seasons where um that i think have perhaps been less my favorite like i really took for for a very long time or at least for the first seven or so seasons probably six seasons uh the simpsons rarely did anything that actual human beings could do so you couldn't drive your RV off a cliff and everybody survives because that's not real life. And that was a mandate from James L. Brooks. And so a lot of the episodes were character driven. And then you get into seasons eight, nine and ten and you're like, oh, shit. Well, OK, what else do we talk about? So you expand the universe, you expand the town. Right. And then you cotton on to the fact that you are a cartoon and you can drive the RV off the cliff and we will survive. So let's do that. And I didn't object to us becoming more cartoony, but I always, I object always when the characters are really mean. I think mean humor is cheap and easy. And I objected to Homer becoming so stupid, like so stupid as to have no heart. And there was a period of time in there, and I forget what seasons they are, where Homer, he just stretched the bounds of believability, and we didn't start there. So that was just my own personal personal preference, that we had kind of, we broke our own rule. He he became less human, and there was always a human tether to all of the characters. It's one of the real strengths of the show, obviously. I always found it so funny... um, at the time, I feel like two shows that got a lot of slack were were The Simpsons and Roseanne, mm. which were, to me, the two most honest depictions of what family dynamics were at their best right? <laughs> in America. I'm like, The Simpsons go to church every week. I mean, that what was... More do you, what more do you want? Do you, you were probably too young to actually remember, but when George H.W. Bush came out and said, we need more families like the Waltons and less like The Simpsons... I do recall that. And so... You're a very astute youngster. I was a big uh, fan of uh, all the bushes. Uh, uh, 
Um, and what he missed in making that comment was, yes, uh, they fight. Yes, they don't um, often succeed. But at the end of the day, they all genuinely and deeply care for each other. And so to suggest that just because Bart mouthed off at his dad made him um, sort of a throwaway kid was absolutely ridiculous because he you know, Bart, he was, he thought it was fun and funny and he wanted to be, I believe, oh, is he wanted to be better? And even if he failed at that, he loved his family. Right. The, the sin isn't, or the unforgivable thing isn't in the kid misbehaving. It's, it, 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 it's the, well, the point isn't that. The point is that at the end, they do have a moral compass. And yes. this is how kids learn is by making mistakes and finding their way back to the, the, the strength and the love of the family. Exactly. Are you comfortable talking about the Apu thing at all? Sure. I, it kind of bums me out. I'll, I'll fully admit I haven't seen the documentary. Me either. So I don't want to be the guy who's yelling at a thing that I don't even understand because mm-hmm. there's already... Quite enough of that probably going on on Sirius XM. (laughs) But something that struck me was I was reading something, I guess, when the show finally responded to it. Lisa responded to it. You responded Mm. to it. The AV Club, which is a website I've read for years and really, really like. I was really disappointed by, I think they've had a lot of staff turnover, frankly. And I don't think they're as sharp as they used to be because they said that they plainly said, there was never any defense for this. Well, first of all, the, so the show's response, I, I wrote it down. Mm. Um, you said something that started decades ago and was applauded and inoffensive is now politically incorrect. Mm. What can you do? Right. And I've read stuff where Matt Groening says that essentially you ha- you have vetoed stuff before saying, I wouldn't really say that. So I don't really see Lisa saying that. Is that accurate? I, I have said that. I, I always fight those battles. I don't always win. Um, I too, uh, haven't actually seen the film that calls out Apu. I do remember though, that feeling that that response, I, I, I worried that people would think that it was too flippant and that it was too brief mm-hmm. to, to try to settle a controversy that at that point had been going on for months with one line and a line that sort of implies um, it's your guy's fault. It's the audience's fault that uh, Apu is no longer a success. I think it's just really um, those are rough waters. And I said, you know, Eh, I don't think this, you know, are you sure this is a good idea? And um, I didn't get a definitive yes or a definitive no. Um, And then, as I said, it takes eight months to animate one episode. And then uh, it came out and um, we got hammered for it. And I personally got hammered for it. And so, um, you know, it caused the writers and the producers to sort of go back to the drawing board and go, okay, we need to do better in addressing that and this issue, and they have not yet come up with a solution. But, so yeah, that's my thought, that it was it was not realistic to think that you were going to blame your audience and 
settle it with one sentence,、mm-hmm. even though it came out of the mouth of the moral compass of the show. Seated beside Marge, yeah, the other moral compass of <laughs> the show, indeed, right, right, and and I think they animated it so that Lisa was looking directly into the camera. And look, I did a, an AMA, a Reddit, ask me anything, a few weeks ago, and somebody asked me about the Apu thing, and I said, "What's absolutely true is every it was the worst news in the world that anybody would be offended by anything that we had done, that they would that it would hurt them so deeply."、Um, and at the end of the day, The Simpsons is known for going after everyone, right? Take no prisoners, so that. Has always been our mandate, but and and the person responded and said it just seemed like a fuck you to the fans, and I said the writers would never ever ever intentionally write or a, a fuck you to the fans, but I can see absolutely how you would take it that way, and and, and because I think in the phrasing that they had for Lisa Simpson that it didn't seem like. We within our universe again. We broke the fourth wall. Really risky, unless that's what you always do in your show, right? And for people who don't know, when you break the fourth wall, you look directly into the camera. And we don't do that on The Simpsons. So to do that and to have Lisa Simpson say that, I can see how the fans took it as it's your fault that this character doesn't work anymore. And honestly, it's nobody's fault. I do think、um, times change. I personally love Apu. I think he's one of the why. Wisest, funniest, most complex characters with the biggest heart.、Mm-hmm. I really, really do. But I'm also not South Asian, so、right. if you know it caused people to be bullied on the playground,、um, that's enormously regrettable. And so, at the end of the day, they're still trying to figure out what to do because we all really love the character, but we sure don't want to. Um, perpetuate a stereotype that people find really, really offensive. Right, and I guess that's sort of the point: is that things do change because. And this is what I found troubling about the AV Club thing: was they just acted as if the character had, had never had any redeeming value in the culture. And I, I've read comments and what have you. Like, do you understand how hard it is to move here from a country like India? It's only the best of the best. You should. You, it would be more accurate to portray him as like a scientist or a, you know, or, 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 or an engineer or what have you, because that's who actually gets here. That may well be true nowadays. When I was growing up, if there was somebody of you know East Asian descent in our town, it was probably the guy at the convenience store, and we did make jokes about that guy and. Just about everybody who's listening to this who has anything in common with me knows that that is true.、Mm-hmm. Apu put a human face on that character. Yes, there were cheap jokes at his expense. Sure, I would argue there were cheap jokes at absolutely everybody's expense based on their role in society. There were cheap jokes about principles. There were cheap jokes about people, teenagers who made French fries about cops, about everyone. Yeah, exactly. But the. We knew who he was as a person.、Uh, we knew his family. We understood the moral basis for his choices about food. Yes, and I would say,、uh, you know, of the cheap jokes that were made at Apu's expense,、uh, you know, our show has often, and when it's successful, it does. People go hooray, and when it's not, of course, they take you to task as well. They should, but. The cheap jokes that are made at Apu's expense are a cultural reflection of 
America, the United States, so often going, you're different from me. I'm going to make fun of you because I don't accept you. So that it wasn't the writer's belief that Apu was unworthy of a better job or a better reputation. But to your point and, and to mine, I guess, is that I always thought he was a truly wonderful character who uh, was so incisive with his wit and, like I said, a massive heart and... uh and if people were making fun of him, it was, again, this is a reflection of the wide, wor- wide world. Um, but 30 years is a long time. And yeah. if those things uh, don't stand up, uh, then they need to change, adapt or die. That's what Darwin said. Right. And maybe the mistake was, I think, another thing we may have learned recently in our culture is trying to solve problems with tweet length answers you're right doesn't really work and maybe it is worthy of of an episode and maybe it is you know maybe it is worthy of a change i just hope that everybody can withdraw their swords yeah in in the process because uh... i think everybody i think everybody has good almost everybody except the shit stirrers have good intentions it's people who love the show it's people whose lives as immigrants or children of immigrants were affected adversely by the show right and i know enough about the documentary to know that the documentary is widely misunderstood and is not i've heard the creator say not nearly as critical as people have assumed again in adapting that to a tweet-sized synopsis it's well said i i think um Yes, that's really beautifully said. The tweet size synopsis is killing us. Yeah, it's yeah. real. I think it's so. Uh, we don't, and then we don't, and then you don't engage in a dialogue. Then it's just barbs. You know, it's mm-hmm. like the tweet is the dartboard, and then everybody just gets out their dart and and throws it. And uh, I, th- I think it's, it's. I'm just really glad I'm not a teenager now, growing up in the war. I mean, you have no privacy to make your mistakes. I know. Right? Can you imagine? No, I cannot. The, the worst things that you... I mean, just the photos alone. Just the bad, candid shots. Like, I was a really good kid, mm-hmm. so I didn't do anything that I hope nobody saw. But fuck the hair. I mean, just the hair. I did lots, of, I did lots and lots of stuff. I moved here when I was like 27 to reinvent myself <laughs> because I still... I was like, okay, I think I'm finally done. Let's just leave. Whatever, <laughs> what happened in New York stays in New York. Um, one last Simpsons thing. I really do want to talk about your podcast. Do you have an opinion? opinion about how the show should end if it ever ends oh no that's just way above my pay grade i mean how do you end a show like that maybe you end it so there isn't an ending Mm -hmm. right but i feel like they'll come up with something really fantastic and uh, and witty as a as a nod to thank you and how great it's been and just because you turned off your television or they canceled the show the simpsons actually will continue in their own springfield universe you're making me sad just saying that Listen, that's, that's, what be... they do, that's what they did with king of the hill they just pulled away while they had a barbecue oh, see? yeah and I'm, same same i'm getting verklempt i feel i'll be in a fetal position on my bathroom floor when <laughs> Lisa Simpson is uh, says her last line. I, oh my goodness, I can only imagine. Is it is it Al Jean? Is that how you say yes. his name? I, I kind of dug his idea. I think it was his idea that they should just lead back to the pilot episode and kind of complete a cycle. See, that's see, they're that's so nice. smart. That's why they're the smartest people in the room. Okay, Small Town Dicks <laughs> is your is your podcast. Um, I don't know based on whatever I projected on you personally or the name of it. I was expecting like a folksy small town who done it. Oh, 
Yes. Well, it's sort of funny about our name. So first of all, the the original premise was big time crime is happening in small town USA everywhere, just with less frequency, but the same level of depravity and um, aggression and viciousness and horror that you would see in Los Angeles, Chicago, New York. And... Um, but the name, what? It, so it's I co-host it with my best friend Zibby Allen and two twin identical twin detectives Dan and Dave. So we were all friends, and Zibby and I, whenever we would see Dan and Dave, we'd be like, "Oh my God, tell us about your day!" Because even their most boring day was the most extraordinary day anybody could possibly imagine. And um, then we thought, "Oh, this should be a podcast," because I think people would love to know. The investigation from soup to nuts, right? We, when we see something on the news or read it in the paper, we also, we often get just the tiny little tip of the iceberg of what the law enforcement had to go through in order to bring this case to its resolve. And, uh, so we started this podcast, blah, blah, blah. Well, Dan, because they're both incredibly funny, there's a lot of gallows humor that goes on in law enforcement because it's one of the ways they process the horror that they see, right? Of course. So Dan came up with this name, Small Town Dicks, and Dicks, of course, referring to the noir slang for detective back in the 1940s. But since we started the podcast, we launched a little over a year ago, there became that there's the Me Too movement. So, you can't think of dicks in terms of the Me Too movement. We're asking you still to go back to the noir movement. Oh, I definitely came from that point of view. Oh, but that I wasn't... did. Yeah, but I did an uh, an interview. That's what it's called. An interview on television, like live interview on a morning show a couple of weeks ago, and they weren't allowed to say dicks on television. I'm like, really, really. This is dumb. And I actually said, this is dumb. Mm-hmm. Can I say it? And they're like, yes, you can say it, but we can't say it. Yeah, there's... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the whole culture's about, getting, there's lots of words that are kind of are kind of going away. Kinda, I heard, yeah. No. But what if you're Richard and your nickname is Dick? Nobody named Richard is. I mean, you're trying to prove anymore. A point. Yeah, <laughs> maybe he's like in the sixty plus crowd. Well, indeed he is, because if he ever was even growing up, you know, five years ago, now he's rich. Yeah, yeah, or yeah, he's yeah. Dwayne, something else. There's a, you got a lot of options. <laughs> <laughs> That's no longer one of them. There's lots of words. I mean, I just hear people say like, "Oh, let's make it a threesome," and I'm like, you, you, "We can't you say can't. that anymore. You can't do it. It's over." <laughs> um, so, so all of yeah. our anyway, all of our cases are told by the detectives who investigated them. Yes, and that's the point of difference. And you see that a lot more in television. You know, Forty Eight Hours or uh, Cold Case or whatever it is, where you have the detectives and you see them go through their process but they also pretty much just the facts ma'am you don't usually get into their actual personal lives these detectives and so we wanted to you don't see it so much in the podcast space where you have law enforcement talking about the work that they actually did um but we're as because it's zibby and me and we're the women and we're the audience who asks all the questions that they either never had the opportunity to ask or the guts we also want to know where do these horrors live inside of you if you're married and you have children or even if you're not how do you deal with your day-to-day when your job is to leave the house and go toward all the things that we run from right so a large portion of the show is you uh Gasping. sounding sounding aghast <laughs> that's true michael you could does as- that offend you no, oh, no, no no it's just funny i was thinking <laughs> probably somebody could make an amazing mega mix of sure just, oh oh my oh my goodness. yes and the <gasps> and that's ama- yeah. amazing and wow i say that a lot i say those three things a lot 
Do you? Ha- I mean, have you had a long-standing interest in in uh, creepy or macabre stuff? I don't like that. I actually can't watch horror movies. That's not my jam at all. Oh no, I'm a total Freddy cat. I'm pretty much scared of everything. I would say I'm. I'm actually. Um, I'm not that brave. I just have an overabundance of courage. You know, I'm not fearless. I just have this overabundance of courage. Yeah. Um, but my fascination with true crime really has to do with the fact that, first of all, I love the good guys to win. Mm-hmm. I really have this kindergarten view of the world where I want the good people to win all the time. And second of all, I, as I mentioned earlier, I was a really good kid, right? I was a rule follower. So I'm fascinated by these people who do not value the things that all the rest of us value in order for society to go to to not completely default into chaos. So the number one thing would be trust. If you don't value trust, so if you either you don't trust people or you don't care that they don't trust you, you're already an anomaly to me. You're already an aberration and I don't understand that. And if society doesn't have trust, then it the wheels come off the train. Right. Yeah, yeah. You and I are coming from the same place. I assume people are essentially good, and yes. there are other people who, uh, some of whom manage to be quite successful in our society, assume that, that everybody's going to screw them over if they don't right. screw everybody over first. Right. Um, so I feel like the nature of true crime stuff mm. has evolved. Have you always had an interest in in that kind of stuff? Would you? Yes. Say? Again, I like. I, I want. You know. I, I, I've secretly always had this fear that I would be wrongly accused of a crime. And so I I hope that there would be people out there who could help me get out of that jam because I didn't actually do it. Right. That's the good guys win. Okay, so you have a preoccupation with being exonerated for crimes. Yeah, <laughs> you didn't <laughs> Which is commit. Weird. <laughs> yes, because I feel like the, and I don't know what it is. If it's the internet or if it's just, I guess, culture just gets. I don't want to say cruder, but more liberal, what have you. As time goes on, if you had made this podcast or this TV show twenty, thirty years ago, it's well, you know, so and so was. Um, uh, it was an old lady with a lot of money left somebody out of the will, and then she got hit over the head with a candlestick. Right. And <laughs> who done it? It's it's Clue. Yes, yes, yes. And now it's more like, uh, and that's when we found her ear on the street. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, I do think that the evolution of true crime is actually somewhat tied to our um, obsession with sort of DC Comics, Marvel Comics, the whole superhero thing. You know, law enforcement, when they're doing their best work, which they often are, there's, of course, the national conversation as well about um, the bad apples in, in law enforcement. Every organization, every profession has them. Um, but I do think that by and large, again, back to the assumption that people are doing the best they can and um, and doing it well, that people want, they like heroes. And so if there is an agency like the FBI or your local police department that is supposed to keep the town pretty much in order, or when things get out of order, bring it back to order, you want those people to be able to do that. And when you hear details of, oh my God, shit almost got away so bad that nobody could fix it, but then they did. That's really exciting. And I think it makes you feel like, okay, I can sleep at night. 
And interestingly, yeah. sorry to interrupt, no, but our, our audience, we happen to know, is 77% women. And true crime is a, has a, a larger female fan base than male fan base. I have a theory on that. Do you, do you have a theory yeah. as to why? No, do tell. Do you don't have any? Well, I just think, again, back to the... Um, we want to make it right. We we are uh, problem solvers as mm-hmm. women, I think, but so are men. You know, there's that conversation of if you're talking to your wife and she's telling you about your bad day and then you want to fix it. And women are always like, don't fucking fix it. I just need to tell you about my day, right? Right. But at the same time... Yeah, my wife gives me periodic reminders. I that. think. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, get it. I'll get it one of these days. You might not ever, though, because no, I, I do think that you, as men and culturally, you are raised that way. Like, fix it and then move on. Yeah, if you have a problem, let's figure out what we're going to yeah, do about it. Yeah, and I'm very much that way, too. I mean, I, I feel like a lot of, in a lot of ways I had a lot of dude wiring inside me mm-hmm. for those things. But women, um, we, I don't know, actually. Maybe I don't have a theory. I was going to say we keep track of a lot of things. That's true. And we... There is, of course, that maternal protection instinct. I don't have children, but, um, you know, I would protect you if you were in peril. I appreciate that. <laughs> if I were in peril, I could probably I could probably use some help. No, this is, I mean, this is maybe a little dark, but um, uh, I'm friendly with a stand-up comic, and she does a whole thing. Her name's Jessie Mae Peluso about how guys just like... We'll walk through a parking garage at 2 a.m. Just like, do-do-do-do-do-do-do, women have to. That she has this thing about how she'll pretend to be crazier than the crazy person. Um, because women, it's not instinctive. It's it's learned behavior sure. based in some sort of reality. You have to be more vigilant about something heinous happening out in the wild than men do. And that is kind of true. And it's funny because it's always the guys who are just like, I know if I do a bunch of steroids and, you know, uh, cover myself <laughs> in metal studs, then no one's going to fuck with me. Right. And you don't really see that that woman. Where, whereas it's the women who I, I, I would tend to believe take an interest, first of all, because they can put yourself they, they can put themselves in your shoes because you're the narrator. You are the proxy for the audience on your own show. But because I think women maybe have a reason the same way, like we go to horror movies because we need to rehearse the feeling of mm. of being terrified by something that's never going to present itself in our right. real lives. Maybe that's why true crime is appealing to women. That's interesting. I think that's a really fascinating um, theory. I Actually, it makes me think of when I first moved to New York City and I was 18 years old. And um, I'd been there so many times because my grandparents lived there, my mother's parents. And I actually lived with my grandmother at first, and then I got an apartment on my own. But I literally, I wish, if I wish you could see things on the radio, I looked like I was 12. And so, but I was 18. So, but I remember my mother telling me, when you come out of the subway... Just keep walking. And if it takes you a block to get your bearings, so be it. But right. don't stop on the corner. Don't let them see Exactly. You. Look around and go, where am I? Because mm-hmm. they will be on you like that. And it and once or twice I did it because your natural instinct is to come up from underground and go, where the fuck am I? And they were on me like, you know, flies on honey. Oh, because oh, oh, so yeah. I, I developed that paranoia on my own in New York City. About, about when would this have been? Uh, this was 83. Oh, okay. All right. So I got there a little bit later, around 90 or so. I went to high school in New York, but I'm from New Jersey. So Mm -hmm. I I commuted in and the first day I got it in my head that instead of East and West being, uh, East and West of one another, that you would go five, four, three, two, one, one, two, three, four, five. (laughs) 
<laughs> so I got, I was supposed to take a train from like 86 to 42nd and somewhere around 68th, I'm like, I think I already missed it. This feels wrong. So I just got out and started walking south thinking yeah. sooner or later I have to get to the bus station. I remember when I finally called my mom, I said, I don't know where I am, but everything behind me is Chinese and the, the sign across the street says, welcome to Little Italy. <laughs> Oh, Michael, that's so good. I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> uh, you mentioned how people are, um, is definitely something I thought about listening to your podcast, Small Town Dicks, throughout this week. People uh, are so inclined to assume the worst about, so many people are inclined to assume the worst about uh, police these days. I was struck by, assuming these guys are telling the truth, and I'm sure that they... <laughs> I'm sure that they are. Well, would a crooked cop tell you he's crooked on a podcast? No. Of course not. My point is, okay. they're on the level. I'm yes. sure Dan and Dave are, are are totally ethical. I get that from them. They seem like solid dudes. Like even, so some of the stuff that I heard was, it wasn't so much a, a, a whodunit or a mystery. One of the episodes starts with the guy calling the cops to say, yes. you know, I killed my wife. Here's where you're going to find yes. her. Even then, it takes them a couple hours to get a search warrant. Yes, because... I actually found myself thinking, we need to remove some of these red tape from our police officers. It's remarkable. And how long it takes to get DNA, I don't know if you've listened to any of those episodes, but early on in the like season one, Zibi and I just jaws to the table every single time. You would hear, oh yeah, it can take easily eight months, because in a lot of states that don't have a lot of large urban areas, there's literally one DNA lab for the entire state. One. And now that we rely so heavily on DNA, of course, they're completely inundated. So we just did a case where a guy came, told us about a, a rapist, a serial rape. Well, it turned out he was a serial rapist. And he it took him, took eight months to get that DNA. Like, you don't understand. We can't hold him until we get this. And that's and just, just too bad. Out there because the yeah. labs the labs backed up yeah. like, like a photo mat. In that's the exactly 80s. right. So uh yeah, so they you know, in order there are a lot of boxes you need to tick in order not to violate somebody's rights. And so Dave, for instance, talked about an interview recently where um I think she had just aired, it's called Wolf, and it's about um a sex offender. And oh, that was horrible. It's horrible. That's I, where I started. We oh, and I frequently do just like kind of. I'm I'm a little bad with this with with my kid. I'm kind of like you know language. I just kind of I don't I don't care. <laughs> he's six. Sure. I know you're not Lisa Simpson, but you're the, the two voices are remarkably they similar. Are so and I similar. Mean, it leads with wait. I, I wrote it down. It was what is it? Um, you know what happens when somebody's been murdering children is like the ad that you're reading for a, <laughs> yeah, a, a yeah, novel. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean that's like five seconds in. Thank God he wasn't in the car. There's no way I would have turned off in time. And then it gets worse. Yes, yes. Oh, so much worse. And we also have, uh, we get a lot of 911 calls and jailhouse calls and suspect interviews. Yeah. We file the FOIAs for those. And uh, But Dave was saying, he's talking to this guy and they're having this interview and the guy is doing what I've now since learned is called bridging and you can hear him try to think of what to say and it's you're just your blood starts to boil but as soon as Dave says you have a computer and the guy says yeah and he goes uh can do you have you know child porn on that computer and he's like well no I'm not I'm not really into that. I, so what do you look at? Well, I'm sort of, you know, incest. And Dave's like, can I have a look into your computer? He's like, you know, I don't, I don't really want to talk to you about that. So 
And then Dave clarifies three more times. Are we still okay to talk? You're still talking to me voluntarily? This is all right, right? So that it's perfectly clear that he hasn't asked to end the interview. Meanwhile, he said, you can't get into my computer. So Dave has to write a search warrant for the computer, but the interview can continue. Right. And then you have to wake, if it's in the middle of the night, which it often is, you have to wake up a judge, you have to bring them the, you know, search warrant, have them sign it, then you go back and you start to search the place. It is, you've just no idea how long these things take. It's right. crazy. When this, it couldn't, it couldn't be more guilty. This right. Person. And it's so interesting. I've only listened to, I guess there's four episodes have been posted so far this This season, season. yes. The criminal's... The the meek, I can't even say half-hearted way that they deny crimes. They don't own it, but yeah, like, do, do, do what sort of porn you watch? Well, there may have been a couple kids in there, but I, yeah. who can really keep things straight? Like, does, why don't you just admit to the crime? Or the guy who, you know, I don't, I don't want to spoil things for people. It comes up pretty early. The guy who may or may not have murdered his girlfriend mm-hmm. it was just like covered in blood and he's like yes. no way you guys can't find her that's crazy what's going on here it's remarkable that they did these bald um denials they're just it it's it, you're like really it must be panic right i guess so I mean, and, what would and you maybe do if they you flipped think... out and killed somebody i don't think i'd be very everybody oh this is what i would do i would have I just, no composure whatsoever no, at all and actually we talk about that um we one of the things we learned about is that people who are guilty and if they have if they're waiting in the interview room for however long if it's you know longer than 10 minutes or so they often fall asleep and they the cops call that the guilt sleep Wow. <laughs> like who would have the composure to actually fall asleep if you are on the hook for murder and you know you did it or if you know you didn't do it more yeah. to the point i guess i can probably explain it that may be um a really intense adrenaline dump fighters talk about yes fighters talk about that that sometimes right. they peak before they get so worked up for the fight that they literally like amount announce their name and the brain goes whoa go time <laughs> And all the training, right as they're like, okay, you guys, you know, keep it clean. They just feel themselves going, Whoa. Really? Because they just adrenaline dumped too early. And maybe, I don't know, if it, uh, killing somebody and then getting arrested over it could take a lot out of a person. You think? <laughs> <laughs> and maybe just all of the, you know, the, the hormonal, what what have you that's going on, maybe that's, maybe you just collapse maybe. at that point. Because it can't if- be, there. these are not smooth criminals. No, they're not. Uh, Dan and Dave always say they catch the dumb ones, but also sometimes <laughs> they catch the smart ones. But one of the things that has so surprised me about all of these criminals, they have really active social profiles. Facebook has been one of the biggest advents in catching criminals you can possibly imagine. Because if you can... Now, you have to, they have to actually write a search warrant to Facebook if the page is private... But if the page is not private, you have no fucking idea how easy it is to connect the dots and go, oh, you know that. And you know what? That person's wanted for burglary. (laughs) What do you know? And that, I mean, it's just the way, the the ease with which you can connect the dots through these um, social mediums is pretty fantastic. I've definitely seen examples where people have confessed to, and not like I have a confession to make, just like status update, just just stabbed a guy. Oh. Yes, well. <laughs> it, 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 so do you feel like you've learned, I think the real 
easy thing to say is sociopath, sociopath. And I'm not even entirely sure I know what that word means. Like, okay, there's there's people who obviously have fundamentally less regard for the value of other people's lives, you know, compared to their own. You couldn't commit a crime like this. Right. Um, and there's some people who probably have none. The, the, the son in the father-son mm-hmm, thing was particularly mm-hmm. creepy in that mm-hmm. regard. But unless we're just going to say to commit a heinous crime is a sociopathic act, ergo, only sociopaths commit crimes. And right. there have to just be, is it bad people? Is it people who made mistakes? I guess some people can get mixed up in drugs. Do you feel like you've learned something about the criminal mind beyond just that superficial diagnosis? It's interesting. Uh, it often, there are often drugs involved. Yeah. That is true. Um, I think, you know, where drugs were not involved... And where there was not some legitimate mental illness, uh, there seems to be an inability to cope with adversity. And that, and now whatever that is, again, I think that people are fascinated by, well, I have a bad temper, you know, I get road rage, I don't actually run anybody off the road or pull out a pistol and shoot them through the windshield, but God damn, somebody cuts me off, I get so mad. There, but for the grace of God, go I, that I would actually whip out a pistol and shoot somebody, you know, through the windshield. I think people want assurances in these stories like, well, yes, I do. Yes, I, okay, I can have a hair trigger temper, but I would never do that. And so what is it about these people who can't deal with adversity to the extent that they take it to that nth degree? Because I actually think there's a pretty great distance between I'm so angry I could kill you to actually killing you. Do you know what I mean? And then when you figure in premeditation, yes. again, there's the, well, one, the one episode this season where they hatch the plan one day yes. and then go to sleep. Yes. And the next day they wake up and do it. And, and I don't want to do get, it. I, don't, I mean, I don't know if you want to say who they do it to, but I mean, it's just, it's, no. it's horrible. It's horrible. It is and you should, you know, and speaking of the sociopath, actually, we have a four-part series in season one called The Sociopath and the Whistleblower, and it's about a bad cop, and it's fascinating. It's just, it went on for 10 years, these egregious crimes uh-huh. that this cop was committing. Oh, and, oh, he's both. Yeah, and he had to be um, investigated by one of his own, mm-hmm. and um, it will kind of, it'll blow your mind. And also, oh, there's another good one yeah. in season two uh-huh. you have to listen to. is called If These Walls Could Talk. Uh-huh. So, so unbelievably creepy. Can you give me and a hint? Just, yeah, this guy is a mumbler. He And he, so they're like, you know, and it's actually a thing. Like it's, um, it's, a, it's a little bit like uh, people, a little OCD kind of a, a thing. People who actually mumble sort of constantly. And uh, so they end up wiring the house. They pretty much suspect that he's killed his wife. This is early on because he makes the 911 call. And they're like, I wonder if we just wired his house if he would mumble a confession. So he starts mumbling and Gregorian chants are playing in the background. Yeah, dude, you gotta listen to that one. That's so crazy. Did you get the, Did you get the audio? Did they oh yeah. Audio? Oh my. Yeah. Uh, that was another thing. I thought. I don't know if anybody has ever made a show that's just people 
reacting to just straight up 911 feeds, but you could just about make the show. Here's this horrible call, and then you go, oh my goodness. You know? Yes, we actually did an episode with one of the dispatchers uh-huh. in this small town where she brought us four, three of her most memorable calls, and and one was quite funny, and then two were really tragic with and the same incident, same kind of incident, but completely different reactions to it. It's just fascinating. I think it's a fascinating job, and I have so much respect for. You know, there's bad apples in anything, but the the composure and the quick wittedness of people who do nine one one. You know, it's anybody can do it for an hour with a little bit of right. training, but to just day in day out, you just never know. It's the same as being a police officer. You just never know when. The next moment is going to be a definitive moment in your life, many people's lives, and to to rise to the occasion is, is is incredible and really really commendable. They all say that being a policeman is a calling, not a job, and that there's no such thing as a routine traffic stop. You know that phrase? It's a routine traffic stop. There's never a routine traffic stop because you have <sighs> no never, idea. They've never been to Culver City, right? <laughs> That's all they do there. <laughs> <laughs> they never know what they're going to get when they walk up to that window. You never know. Of course, of course, right. exactly. You always have to be prepared. Except for the in worst. Culver City. Except in Culver City, where nothing ever happens. <laughs> they just give me tickets. <laughs> but that's a story for another day uh, between for between me and my uh, insurance company. Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed talking to you. I appreciate oh, thank you. Uh, your uh, your candor and everything that you do, and I appreciate your podcast. Uh, it's I, I'm I can't handle it. I, I've I've grown out of it. I'm becoming very skittish in my dotage. Don't and every, say that, every time I open a door, You're I'm ex- dotage. I'm what expecting a great word. I'm expecting to find something harmful <laughs> behind <laughs> it. <laughs> but the good guys are winning in our podcast. Okay, let, Come let's on. let's let that be our takeaway. Okay. So right. uh, the Simpsons, needless to say, airs Sundays on Fox. Thirtieth season, episode six hundred sixty six will be the Treehouse Is of the- Horrors. No, it's actually not this season. This year, it is next season's six hundred and sixty-six, I believe. But it will be a treehouse of horror. It will be a treehouse of horror, appropriately enough. Yes, and uh, people can download Small Town Dicks wherever you pod at Small Town Dicks. Not that kind of dick. Get your mind out of the gutter on Twitter. <laughs> Thank you, Yardley. <laughs> Thank you for having me. 